You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Sarah, I was going to kind of try to do some sort of hard-boiled detective narration here at the top, but I just don't think I can sustain it for that long. The stage setting would be kind of difficult. Like, we would have to turn the entire um, podcasting booth into grayscale. Like, I would have to find a trench coat. You'd probably need a fedora. Like, that feels like a lot of production value for an audio medium. Yeah, I'm more of an Elliot Gould Philip Marlowe than a Humphrey Bogart Philip Marlowe, let's be honest. I can get behind that, (laughs) especially since we are going to be talking about Robert Altman's 1973 movie, The Long Goodbye, starring Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe. I'm looking forward to that. We're also going to be talking about David O. Russell's star-studded period piece, Amsterdam, an Oscar hopeful for sure. All that's coming up on episode 352 of Seeing and Believing. Do you think they'll let us smoke in here? Uh, better not risk it. So, two soldiers and the nurse found ourselves in... Amsterdam. We formed a pact, and we swore to protect each other, no matter what. Tax the rich... We find ourselves in a situation where we're accused of killing someone, which is not true. It's no you and Woodman fled the scene. The killer pointed at us. We didn't do anything. Why would you possibly think that was us? Well, there's not too many people that fit the description of a doctor looking for his eye on the ground with his uh, black attorney. Columbia Law School. Yes, we're here on episode 352 of Seeing and Believing, and uh, I feel like I need you know an ice pack for my brain or something because we've got we're, we're talking about two noir inflected movies so mm-hmm. labyrinthine plotting i i feel like i'm kind of got a little bit of brain burn from all that twisty mysteries twisty mysteries uh i i like that uh are you are you doing okay sarah are you ready to jump in on this oh yeah i'm i'm ready to jump in i don't know that i could tell you any plots but that's okay i'm raring to go yeah we if, if anyone out there has any flow charts for either the Long Goodbye coming up in the Watchlist segment or this film that we're about to talk about here in a second, Amsterdam, let us know. A flowchart might be helpful. Uh, but we'll, I guess, we'll let's just jump right in. We'll tackle the first of, of those films, Amsterdam, here. Mm-hmm. This is uh, the new film from David O. Russell, star-studded, of course. As the opening title card of the film informs us, this period piece is based on a true story. Sort of. Christian Bale, John David Washington, and Margot Robbie play a trio of friends who are swept together by chance in World War I and swept apart by chance soon afterward. We catch up with them again on the eve of World War II. Bale's scarred doctor Bert is offering street cures to other wounded veterans of the Great War. Robbie's free-spirited artist is an agoraphobic invalid, and Washington's lawyer Harold is working to uncover the cause of the suspicious death of his commanding officer from the war. Together, the three stumble into a plot that is one part farce, one part noir mystery, and one part historical recounting of a subversive plot against America. So there's a lot going on in this movie, Sarah, and that's just the the skating over the surface with the synopsis Mm -hmm. history politics love war lots of heady topics here do you think that russell does the enormous subjects in this film justice or does he bite off more than he can chew oh it's definitely biting off more than he can (laughs) chew (laughs) um 
it feels like in the attempt to encompass everything with his movie, he's really only just skating over the surface. It's not really anything more than surface level, at least the way that I felt. Um, Nothing that he touches on goes much deeper than that. There's a lot of talk about um, Christian Bale's character, Bert, following the wrong god home from the Great War. And that's a line that's repeated as though it's something that's kind of profound, but it's not really a line that's ever really explained or underlined or, or given much credence beyond just this guy came home and he maybe fell in with probably the wrong crowd. There's also another repeated line, just speaking on the love angle of this movie, where people talk about true love being a choice instead of a need. Like you choose to love somebody instead of just needing them. And I think like to a certain degree, that's probably true, but the movie also doesn't do very much to underline that point or really even illustrate it. It's just something that's said out loud in dialogue over and over again. And I really do think that that is one of this movie's great failings is that so much of the focus is on the dialogue that it just kind of leaves everything else behind in the dust. I don't know. What did you think? We'll have to circle back to those, those lines that you mentioned just now, because I, I agree with you that they're very interesting lines. Like they're, they're the sort of line that sounds really well written, mm-hmm. but I don't think that the movie as a whole explicates them for the audience. So it feels like uh, they're, whatever meaning is in them kind of gets wasted. I don't know. It's kind of a sweaty movie. And I don't mean it's sweaty in the sense that, in the sense of something like Do the Right Thing, where it's set in, you know, like a really muggy New York City in the middle of summer and, you know, everybody's sweating. I mean, sweaty in the sense that it just feels like. It is working so hard to establish its own importance and wisdom and humor Mm -hmm. that it's really hard to ignore the the pit stains, I guess. (laughs) I know this this extended metaphor is maybe going off the rails a little bit, but I guess Amsterdam is a a film that it, it just seems like David O. Russell is really swinging for the fences with this one. He wants to say a lot about a lot of things. And I think the problem is he either, and this is maybe something we can actually discuss and dig into, because I'm not necessarily sure which one of these it is, but he either doesn't have very much to say about them, Mm -hmm. or he has so much to say that he doesn't have time enough to devote to all of them to do them all justice. I'm not sure which of those it is, but it's definitely one of them. Yeah, yeah, and... I don't know. I'm I'm inclined to think that it's the latter. I think that he has way too much to say and also he doesn't have a lot to say about everything that he has way too much to say about, <laughs> if that makes sense. I don't know. This movie feels like the movie version of a sanctimonious Twitter thread where you can tell that whoever it is that is talking about whatever it is that they're talking about is very much fired up and on like passionate about the thing that they are discussing and they are passionate about it in a way that says I am the only person who knows everything about this topic even if I just learned about it a few minutes ago or a few days ago and I want everybody else in the world to feel exactly the same way as I do about this one particular topic and it really does feel like a lot of just sort of bon mots just being tossed off by these different characters in ways that make you think that line is pretty good, 
but the way that it is tossed in with everything else makes me think that there wasn't a lot of thought about how everything was put together and about the general overall effect. I think that it is possible to say a lot with a little, and it really feels here like David O. Russell is just saying a little with a lot. (laughs) I mean, it's hard to argue about that. And to be fair, I think that for all of the shortcomings of the screenplay, and I think that's maybe where I would kind of lay the the bulk of this movie's sense is that I just, I don't think it's, it's a lot of writing. It's not necessarily compelling writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this, the screenplay is a culprit here. I, I don't mind the, the directing all that much. I think that the cast is, is good. They do a lot to help those indigestible chunks of dialogue go down smoothly. Um, mm. but, you you might disagree with that. I do disagree with that. Actually, I I did not care for the direction much either. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, well, uh, let's let's talk about that a little bit because I think that, and I definitely know that we we were at the same screen together, and so I know that I, I already know going in, and I like this a little better than you. I don't think either of us quote unquote liked it, mm-hmm. but I I did find some things to appreciate about where I was like, I think it's a movie that has its heart in the right place, even if. Mm-hmm it doesn't necessarily do any, like it, it, it kind of lays there and doesn't actually have much of a pulse. But <laughs> I, I think that, you know, David O. Russell, he, it's not a cynical movie. It doesn't strike me as a, as a movie that is hollow. I just think it's wholly unsuccessful, but it, you were very uh, not you you weren't buying any of it it sounds like no i actually in my notes i went back and took a look at them tonight i wrote i hate this movie twice um at different points in the movie did not realize that i had done so um it's not a cynical movie but i do think that it's a smarmy one and i think it's a movie that does think that it is on the right side of history and that it is going to present a situation and give it to you using a very 2022 lens i think in a way that feels disingenuous it feels like it is misrepresenting where a lot of these characters probably would have been at the time period that they're living in and i also think that it wants you to maybe feel like bolstered by the message that the movie is giving but at the same time it also feels like the movie is is kind of preaching to the choir and in a way, like, I agree with a lot of the points that he's making with this movie. Like, the movie is about a conspiracy that kind of mirrors a lot of stuff that's going on in the world right now in 2022. And maybe that's part of the reason why it feels like a very 2022 sensibility. But it feels like the movie has a very distinctive view of its events and how the plot unfolds in a way that is intended to guide the viewer to come to a very specific conclusion about how good or how bad each of its characters are. And I don't like being told exactly how to feel about the characters in a movie. I would much rather just watch them live and exist in the world and then be given the opportunity to come to my own conclusions. Like art as dialectic is something that I just, I cannot stand. And this really felt like it was, it was didactic. And I don't like that. I mean, I, I see what you're saying, and I I, I don't disagree with it because mm-hmm. I too kind of get a little itchy around a movie that's really kind of you know shaking its finger at me and or thumping a religious text at me of some sort. Mm-hmm. 
that's, I mean, I, I think the the problem isn't necessarily so much that it's, it's got a point and it's really trying to, you know, make it. Mm-hmm. I think it's more that the points it's making just aren't all that interesting. Mm-hmm. So the, the, as the mystery unfolds in this film, it comes to light that there are forces at work in America that are have some sort of connections. Not clear until the very end exactly what those connections are, hmm. but it becomes clear fairly early on that there are some shadowy forces that have connections to foreign governments that are kind of working within America to do something. And the final reveal of what those shadowy forces are, what they want, and which of our characters are aligned with them is... I, I mean, the way it's structured, it, it feels like Russell intends it for it to be kind of a twist or, or or some sort of like, oh, you didn't see that coming moment. But it was thoroughly unsurprising who, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And mm-hmm. to the point where I was wondering, like, is this trying to be meta about how, how obvious it was? And I don't think it is. I think it's just very much like it's so carried away on the wings of its own righteousness which and it is technically, you know, it's righteous in the sense that it has the courage to say that evil people are evil. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's true. Is it interesting? It could be, but in this movie, I don't think it it's it's expressed in an interesting way. Yeah, I think anybody who's familiar with whodunit structure is going to know immediately who the bad guys are the moment that they walk on screen, which I found deeply disappointing um i don't know i think i was expecting something that was going to be a little bit less straightforward about what it was doing and maybe that has something to do with the tone and the way that this story is told because it does feel very earnest and i am on board with earnest storytelling but again so much of this storytelling is earnest in a one character is going to tell another character everything that they already know kind of way. Like the moment that John David Washington shows up, he begins to just deliver exposition in an, as you know, you and I, we were we were best friends and we met over in the Great War over in Europe and we've been best friends ever since, even though we can't stand some of the decisions that we've made. Like this is him literally just talking to Christian Bale's Bert for the first five minutes of the movie. And the moment he showed up and started delivering just this kind of very deadpan expression, like here's what's going on. I'm literally just going to be a vehicle for the plot. The movie lost me. And I think it's because even I think you mentioned that the direction sort of worked for you. And for me, it just felt so much like all of these characters are literally just existing to deliver a message that David O. Russell wants to deliver. And a lot of that is through this very overwrought dialogue. And I really just wish that he had been willing to sit down and allow the movie to breathe and allow the characters to breathe and maybe say something that informs character a lot more than plot or underlining a point. It feels a little bit like a first draft. Yeah. Uh, it, like the the way that the, the mystery is eventually revealed, the way the conflict is eventually resolved, um, the way these characters interact and fit together the bones of a of a decent movie are maybe in there somewhere. I just don't know that it's been baked to complete to completion. <laughs> um, and, and to be fair, I think, and this may might be where we differ again. Is I do think that the cast does what they can with that dialogue. the The John David Washington exposition that you're talking about, I think he carries it off mostly because in 
his hands and in the hands of the other principals, it feels like stylization rather than just hmm. chunks of exposition. And I think that's down to the strength of the performance uh, more so than the writing. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know how much credit we can give to Russell there, but it, it didn't bother me as much as by the time we got to the end, you know, the movie is still kind of going on explaining the plot. And I, by that point, I think the audience is sort of going, or at least I was still going, yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> it, it's, I, I felt the same way about the, the way I feel about, I don't know, some latter day Tim Burton movies where it's like, yeah, the, the outcasts are the heroes and the, you know, the perfect people are the bad guys. Like we, we get it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not revolutionary here in 2022 anymore, if it ever was. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. There were a few, I think the principles actually didn't work for me quite nearly so much as some of the side characters did. So Anya Taylor-Joy pops up a little bit later in the movie. Love me some Anya Taylor-Joy. Oh, and she was great. And I think the way that she tosses off a lot of these lines that you're talking about, they felt a little bit less cumbersome to me in her mouth than they did in John David Washington's. Maybe it's because she's literally just tossing off a single line and then that's it for her for whatever scene that she's in. But with John David Washington, it just felt like he was reading whole paragraphs of text. I mean, he was reading whole paragraphs of text. (laughs) Yeah, but like it felt like he was reading them off a teleprompter to me. Mm. And maybe that's unfair to him. Like, I I feel like this movie really did him dirty because I do appreciate him very much as a performer. But whatever was going on behind the scenes with this one, it just didn't stick for me. Oh, I I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think that... The star-studded nature of the of the film threatens to make the film succeed <laughs> where it would, would otherwise fail. Um, so we might differ there. But since we're talking about dialogue so much, maybe we can revisit that line that crops up a couple of times. Uh, so at various points, uh, Washington's Herald uh, tells Bert that uh, he followed the wrong god home from the war. So these these two men... Uh, they originally met in an integrated uh, combat unit in the First World War, uh, uncommon at that time. Uh, the incident that kicks off the plot is their commanding officer, who is in charge of bringing together this integrated regiment, um, has died under mysterious circumstances. Um, after the war, uh, they kind of go their separate ways after kind of this idyllic stint in Amsterdam where Mm -hmm. they, you know, they hang out with Margot Robbie, a romance develops between Washington and, and Robbie. It's kind of like a Jules and Jim. We, we talked about that with Elijah Davidson, uh, on a previous episode. And I kind of, I was glad that I'd seen that because I kind of got vibes of that where there's, it's not a love triangle exactly, but there's just a bond between the three of them. That's compelling, at least on paper. Mm -hmm. Um, but after they, they go their separate ways, in, after that stint in Amsterdam, uh, apparently, you know, Bale returns to America to be with his waspy wife, played by Andrea Riseborough, and he's told later on that he followed the wrong god home. I don't really know what that means. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know if you have any guesses. Because, <laughs> yeah. again, like we mentioned at the top of the segment, it's an interesting thought. Like, what what god did Bert follow home to America? Is he still following that god? Because... At least on on paper, it seems like he's kind of still doing the right thing by 
the people around him and just do trying to just make his way in the world. Yeah, I think part of the confusion over that is that he kind of has two motivating like pieces of himself. So he's chasing after his wife um, after Amsterdam, after Bert spends time with Harold and Valerie in Amsterdam, he decides to return home because he says that he cannot quit his wife. And I suspect that this is the reason why Washington's Harold accuses him of following that wrong god home is because he doesn't approve of Bert's wife. She is very waspy, as you said. Her family doesn't approve of Bert. And he's kind of almost grubbing for their attention in a way that feels a little bit gross to me. Um, and I suspect that it's because there's there's some undertone. So Bert is Jewish in the movie, and he's he's coded as being so. And it's strongly implied that Andrea Riseborough's father does not approve of him largely because of his ethnicity, which comes into play later in the movie as well. And so I think that Harold disapproves of Bert's return home because Bert is unable to quit his waspy wife and is unable to try to seek the approval of his wife's family, even though they were the ones who sent him off to fight in the war and potentially die in a horrible battle uh, to begin with. Um, but at the same time, Bird is also very much motivated by serving the veterans who also came home a little bit before he did, who have been left horribly maimed and wounded by the war. And so... I don't know that the movie knows how to focus on both of those two different things, because for me, it seems like Bert's entire motivating factor is that he wants to help other people heal and become whole. And yet the movie keeps continually telling us that he can't quit his wife. And there's no chemistry there. There's no indication that these two ever really loved each other a ton other than through that dialogue. Like, I don't get a sense that they ever really loved each other in a way that feels strong and real. And maybe that's because that love is probably gone by the time we meet these characters, even though he says that he's still chasing it. Um, but I wasn't convinced by it. And so I wasn't convinced that that was his main reason for wanting to return home. And at this, that kind of undermines Harold's entire point about Bert to begin with. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think that, again, it might be a symptom of David O. Russell, just he doesn't want... He doesn't want his good guys to be too have too many shades of gray in their characters because that would then threaten our desire to sympathize with them, which in turn might threaten the the entire project of setting up uh, kind of this grand moral uh, dichotomy between our heroes on one side and the dark forces that are massing against them on the other. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe the problem is that kind of renders a lot of the internal conflict toothless because it doesn't really you know we're, we're told that Bert followed the wrong god home but it kind of just seems like he's trying to be a faithful husband and also help out veterans who are being neglected by their own government and that kind of seems like it's okay yeah. <laughs> like even if his even if his wife isn't the greatest person in the world and his in-laws are jerks at that point in the movie at least it, it doesn't seem like it's uh uh, an idolatrous impulse of his to to move back and kind of just try to make that life work. I mean, there are notes that kind of suggest that maybe that is problematic, but 
as framed in the film, in the filmmaking and in Bale's performance, which he seems to have been directed, like Bert is a good person, Mm -hmm. almost unequivocally good. He has maybe like a slight drug problem that is mostly just attributed to him having painful war wounds. Yeah, and that's not a And that's not a character flaw. flaw. (laughs) Yeah. So we, we kind of run up against that with the other characters as well, where it's just they... If there is any moral ambiguity in their characters, it's entirely drowned out by the fact that David O. Russell wants us to like them so badly, mm-hmm. so sweatily, that he doesn't he doesn't want to uh, risk that in any way whatsoever. And I think that just kind of renders them dramatically inert. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of the tension is sucked out of the movie for pretty similar reasons as well. I, f- I feel like so much of the movie... And the end point and the end game are being telegraphed so early on that even though this is ostensibly a murder mystery movie, we haven't even talked about the murder mystery part because it's kind of just left by the wayside. Well, it's also not that much of a of a mystery either. It's just it's sort of like we find out, oh, there are these bad guys that did it because they're bad (laughs) it's not a very satisfying mystery the road to the end of the mystery isn't particularly twisty or satisfying i don't think um which is really disappointing because if if you're watching a whodunit i feel like you want to be second guessing every single character choice and every single plot development and i never second guessed anybody because i could tell what they wanted and what they felt and I could tell that David O. Russell wanted to give everybody, at least the good guys, exactly what they wanted and felt at every given moment, at every second in this movie. I, I mean, there, there's definitely there's a definite noirishness about the visuals here. Like the mm-hmm. there's an early chase scene where uh, a, a client of Burton Harold's uh, is killed abruptly, and they are framed for the murder, and they have to they have to run away from the scene of the crime. Mm-hmm. And there's a shot that uh, Russell includes where they're kind of hiding in an alley and there's there's this really sharp shadow cutting across Washington's face. It's it's uh, really, whatever the, f- the film's other flaws, it's shot really well by Emmanuel Lubezki. So mm-hmm. I mean, props there. And I think the visual language in that scene is Russell signaling to us that the plot machinery that we're about to witness is supposed to make us kind of think of the of the murkiness of noir where we don't really know who to trust where there's there's questions that are really naughty that need to be answered and that visual cue is kind of wholly at odds with the fact that for all the sound and fury going on in this film it's not really all that the the moral Questions aren't all that naughty. The characters aren't all that ambiguous. Uh, and I, I think it, it, that kind of is showing how the, the film is kind of at war with itself, where it kind of it wants to be something like, uh, I, I don't know, the big sleep or kiss me deadly. Mm-hmm. But it it just doesn't have the gumption to really be as spiky as those films are in their characterizations. And I think that gets back to what you mentioned at the top, which is that this movie is trying to bite off much more than it can chew, because I actually didn't get a ton of the notes of noir watching this movie. I got a lot of flavors of Truffaut and Jules and Jim with the stay in Amsterdam, like a little bit more of the, we're going to look directly into the camera and deliver some direct address. Like noir is... 
noir comes at you slant ways, I think. And so much of this movie is is spent delivering in direct address or very, very close to it in a way that is incredibly straightforward. And maybe that kind of gets at the movie's internal conflict with trying to deliver a story that could potentially have been twisty or mysterious and is really just straightforward and wearing its heart on its sleeve. I mean... I do really like the final shots of this film. Uh, over the course of the film, Amsterdam kind of comes to symbolize uh, more than just the geographical location. It comes to symbolize kind of this longing for reconciliation, for peace, uh, for living together in harmony, brotherhood, all of those great things. And I think that the film as a whole doesn't really succeed in selling that to us. It's almost as if uh, Russell is either afraid that that's too naive. And mm-hmm. so he kind of throws in a lot of uh, foofara around it, to sort of convince himself that he's making a, a complicated movie for grownups or, or he's maybe just afraid of seeming too sincere. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what exactly is, is underlying it because mm-hmm. I do think when he kind of gets out of his own way, those sequences where we do see this central trio, uh, living together in Amsterdam and enjoying each other's company, the romance between Robbie and, and Washington's characters. Um, the, the final shot where we get them kind of looking directly into the camera and speaking to us. Mm. I think those are really nice. And I would have liked the rest of the movie to have trusted that warmth instead of trying to impress us it felt like it felt like it was really trying to impress me with how smart it was and i kind of just wanted it to have confidence in in the fundamentals of what it's trying to say like peace love and brotherhood pretty strong ideas go with those (laughs) yeah yeah and maybe it is maybe it is just because the movie is trying to do far too much with those things and trying to say far too much about those things i don't know i'm i'm having a hard time seeing a world where i do appreciate this movie and maybe it's because the tone just lost me completely right at the beginning and it never managed to win me back even though it was trying desperately to do that the entire time yeah well a big swing and a big miss on amsterdam for both of us but we're really interested to know what your thoughts are listeners amsterdam is going into wide release this weekend Mm -hmm. um it's definitely gunning for that oscar so it's probably going to be a part of the awards conversation going forward so if you've had a chance to see it after listening to this episode and you want to share your thoughts on it please let us know there's a lot going on in this film as we already mentioned so there should be a lot to talk about you can email us at seeing and believing capc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod don't go anywhere we're going to dive into another murky noir inflected world in the watchlist segment with the long goodbye And now it's time for The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there who are helping us keep the conversation about movies going. So because we were going to be talking about a couple of whodunit-inflected films Mm -hmm. uh, this week, Sarah, on Twitter, you posed the question to our listeners about what their favorite uh, mysteries and whodunits were, and we got a couple of responses about that. We sure did. So Christy Olson tweeted back at us to say that Knives Out is her all-time favorite whodunit. 
and also her all-time favorite movie, which I think is a really good pick. She says she could wax eloquent about that movie for a very long time and also says that it's her favorite Advent movie. And I kind of wish that I'd asked her to uh, elaborate on that a little bit more because I think that's a great pick, but I'm going to need to hear some more details about that. Yeah, I'm thinking that through now, and I I don't know that I'm seeing it, but there's got to be something there. I know that Christy has spent a lot of time uh, talking and thinking about Knives Out from past uh, you know interactions with her. So Christy, if you want to tweet us a follow-up and let us know the details on your Advent preferences for Knives Out, please do. I'm very intrigued by that idea. Yeah, me too. Um, Christy also mentioned that she really enjoyed See How They Run, which is currently in theaters. Um, she said it might be her new favorite Saoirse Ronan performance. She's always so good, but in her role in this movie, she just tickled me pink and made me smile. Pure fun. Christy, I'm going to have to agree with you there, especially about Saoirse Ronan's performance. She's just a ray of sunshine in that particular movie. I'm a, I'm a big Ronan fan as well. Yeah, you, you really can't go wrong with Saoirse Ronan. Um, and then Ian Miller also uh, tweeted at us to say, book-wise, it's either Gaudy Knight or The Daughter of Time, neither of which I have read. Um, but he says he's not a big fan of whodunits in the movie for- format, much prefer either a TV series like the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes or a miniseries format to really explore the form. And you know what? I think that's a really good point because a lot of really good mysteries, if they're well laid out over several episodes, can really keep you guessing, really keep you thinking. I think it gives you a little bit more room for the world to expand and breathe. Um, And also, I'm really glad that you mentioned the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes because he's one of my favorite incarnations of the character. So good pick there. Would that be your your answer to the question for your favorite whodunit then? Uh, No, actually, mine is The Thin Man. Um, I don't think you can go wrong with with Myrna Loy, especially. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, those are fun movies. Um, So I have a confession to make. I don't I'm not a big fan of the whodunit genre. It's a me problem. It's me. It's not them. It's just. I don't think I am smart enough to engage with a lot of them on the level that they want me to, which is to kind of play along and try to figure out who done it mm-hmm. with them. So I find it hard to engage with them on that level. And so maybe I can't access them as well as, as maybe I should be able to. I was going to say that my favorite is probably Howard Hawks's The Big Sleep from 1946, just mm, because mm-hmm. that movie is so famously complicated that it's impossible to figure it out anyway. So I don't <laughs> have to feel ashamed for having trouble with that. But I actually think listening to uh, Ian's feedback about miniseries being an ideal uh, vehicle for whodunits, I'm actually going to change my answer. Ooh. I really love the first season of Broadchurch, the BBC show with uh, David Tennant and Olivia Coleman. There are multiple seasons of that show. I prefer to think of it as a miniseries because I think the first season wraps everything up exactly as well as it needs to, solves its big central question, and is just devastating and perfect. And I think it's great. That's a show I need to catch up with. I adore David Tennant. I really like his work a lot. And I have never gotten around to it. So something else to add. Oh, it's it's so good. <laughs> I, I wrote a piece for Christ in Pop Culture about how much I loved it once upon a time. It's just, mm. it is devastating and great. Excellent. So check Some, it out. Something to check out. Maybe I'll see if I can figure out who done it in the process, potentially. Sounds good. All right. Well, we're going to get into another quasi whodunit coming up here with our review of The Long Goodbye. 
So now here we are in the watch list segment. For any listeners who are unfamiliar with it, this is the part of the show where one host picks a film that uh, they love that the other host has not seen. Uh, we watch it and we talk about it. So this week, Sarah, you were the one who who picked something that I hadn't seen. You picked Robert Altman's 1973, The Long Goodbye. This is an adaptation of another one of Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe mysteries, starring Elliot Gould as the noir gumshoe trying to solve the mystery of who killed his childhood friend while navigating a thicket of two-bit thugs, overbearing police, alcoholic writers, and that mainstay of noir fiction, inscrutable women. (laughs) So uh, now the wrinkle with uh, this adaptation is that it's not set in the playground of noir gumshoes, the you know 30s, 40s, 50s. It's set in what was the present day at that time, the 1970s, and plunks Philip Marlowe down in that world. So it's definitely got a unique flavor all its own. I'm I'm curious to hear, Sarah. I think I know a couple of the tie-ins that kind of inspired you to pick this for this week's episode. But I'm curious to hear kind of your full thought process on why you picked this. I genuinely was just thinking mystery, and that was basically it. Like mystery and a very strong sense of place. And I think you get that probably a little bit more with The Long Goodbye than you do with Amsterdam, although Amsterdam does continually repeat that these characters want to return back to that specific time and place. I think in The Long Goodbye, Philip Marlowe is very, like all Philip Marlowe stories, he's very detached from society and a little bit cynical and jaded about it. So he's kind of unmoored from his place. But you get the sense in this version of the character that he's kind of tethered to it. And I'm not sure if it's just the mood or the vibe or the fact that he just has a cat that he needs to keep feeding. Um, But I don't know. I could watch Elliot Gould just sort of chain smoke his way across L.A. all day. Um, And I could really watch him do it when he's just interacting with characters. One of the things that I love about this as a neo-noir is it kind of updates the film language a little bit from the traditional noir. It's not trying to be like the movies that it takes its template from. So instead of kind of a a slow voiceover about what the character is thinking, Elliot Gould just says whatever the character is thinking at any given point in time. And it's kind of unclear if the other characters around him can even hear him or not. He's not talking to them at all. He's just talking to himself and then by extension the audience. And he doesn't really have much of a filter at all. And I appreciate that he is just kind of... He's, he seems to be very easygoing and he seems to be sort of untethered from what everybody else is thinking and caring about until he gets his teeth into a mystery. And then he's just he's off to the races. He has to figure this thing out and he doesn't really care if anybody else is going to try to stop him because he will understand who done it at some point in time. Um I just, I love that atmosphere and I'm curious to know if that worked for you. It did work for me. I, I really... I was won over pretty much from the beginning here, and I, I'll tell you why. It's because, you know, I, I love noir, and one of the things that I love about it is that hard-boiled voiceover narration. You know, mm-hmm. I just, I love me a hard-boiled hero who talks about the the city streets are, are dank, and, and I, I don't know, I can't do a good noir hero impression, you know, right off the bat, you know, just spontaneously, but it's just... It's so stylized in a way that just really 
you know, scratches an itch for me. I, mm. I love it. And what I lo- love about The Long Goodbye is it kind of has that voiceover narration, but instead of uh, Elliot Gold intoning these these thoughts about how you know the city is an animal and and you know, <laughs> the, the, you know these very these very dark pessimistic thoughts about society he's just sort of mumbling about how he needs to find food for his cat and you know somebody's rude to him he's like i don't know why you're being so rude to me that's okay with me and he, <laughs> yeah. it, it's it, it literally is the the hard-boiled voiceover narration except instead of you know, narrating his his pessimistic thoughts. It's just narrating his thoughts, which, you know, it's stream of consciousness. And hmm. I just found that to be very funny. I, I wasn't prepared for this movie to essentially be a comedy. Mm. Uh, that was what really surprised me. And I don't know, I, I found a lot of pleasure in just sort of hanging out with Marlowe and just wondering what's going to come out of his mouth yet next is it even coming out of his mouth? Are we, you know, obviously his mouth is moving while he's talking, but it, it, it it's not like, it, it doesn't feel like in the sound design or kind of just in the way the other characters around him are behaving. Mm-hmm. It's not entirely clear if, if he's just sort of mumbling under his breath and they can hear him, if he's mumbling under his breath, or if he's just sort of moving his lips and we're hearing his internal monologue in his brain. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I I just enjoyed watching it happen. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, It's funny that you say that this is a comedy, though, because for me it feels a little bit more elegiac, just kind of this character is, he's existing in L.A. and he's, he's fine with the other people, like, continuing to conduct their lives around him. He's got these like hippie neighbors who are always doing yoga out on the balcony and he'll buy them brownie mix if they ask for it. He feels very untethered from everything else that's around him. And I don't know if it's because he's a private eye who's out of work, if it's because his work is literally like kind of spent on the margins looking in at everybody else's lives in society. It doesn't feel like he's judgmental. Like that doesn't seem to be a part of his character or his personality at all. But at the same time, it really does feel like he is kind of a baffled observer of human nature. And he's not really sure what to make of all of these people. And at the same time, he does know how to talk to them in order to get the information that he needs. And he's willing to make a fool of himself or he's willing to get thrown out of a hospital if he has to, if he has to get what he needs in order to find the next clue and the next step to figuring out, you know, who done it um that doesn't feel particularly comedic to me necessarily so i'm, I'm kind of surprised that that struck you that way i mean it, it, it i guess it, it's funny in the way that maybe a coen brothers movie is funny mm. um it's a it's not it's not a a farce in the way that say amsterdam is where where it's definitely it, it's kind of really trying to be kind of almost wacky Mm -hmm. um that's not the sensibility that's in this film but it's just there's so much of it that is funny like marlo in this film he's he's a wisecracking detective in a world where wisecracking detectives are like the you know, it's not a noir world. It's mm-hmm. 1970s LA. And so for him to just show up and sort of crack wise at everybody, it's it's funny because he's cracking wise. It's even funnier though, because they all sort of look at him like, What what are you doing? What <laughs> yeah. that's what why are you 
you are literally in a holding cell at the police station. Why are you, you know, giving me a hard time? <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know. I just, I thought that was so funny. And I, I, I think it's the same kind of funny that you get from any sort of fish out of water comedy. Mm. Marlowe in this film feels almost literally like Philip Marlowe was cryogenically frozen in the 1940s and unfrozen in the 1970s and sort of turned loose. Yeah. And he's sort of just, you know, going along to get along um, and just watching him interact with all these characters. It is kind of, there is an elegiac element to it where it, or or maybe not, uh, elegiac isn't the word I'm looking for, melancholy, I guess. It, there's mm-hmm. a melancholy to it where he kind of doesn't understand why why the world is the way it is Mm. but it's the world that he's living in so he's just going to kind of do what he can and make and make do Mm. and that is that's funny it's just inherently funny and there's also a little bit of melancholy in that and to just kind of that i think a lot of people can relate to and just sensing that the world has changed since uh our since we were younger Mm -hmm. and we don't, and coming to terms with that can be a little bit difficult. And I think that the way this film kind of lets us observe that happening for Marlowe without putting a fine point on it. It's not like he sits down and talks about the world is changing, but we just see it in all of his interactions in the way that he just sort of, he gets thrown out of a hospital and he just sort of dusts himself off. Somebody is really... Uh, violent towards him for no good reason. He's just sort of like, I okay, yeah. you know, whatever. <laughs> he literally Why not? rolls with the punches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, there's kind of this this combination of amiability and just almost a hangdog kind of. Oh well, yeah. What else is going to happen to me? I guess I'll just deal with it when it comes. Mm-hmm. That I I think is uh, humorous and uh, mournful in equal measure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think those two things necessarily need to be mutually exclusive. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes perfect sense. There's kind of an existential streak running through this movie, and I'm not sure if it's because I'm trying to layer it on top of that because I am also a lover of Cowboy Bebop. And Cowboy Bebop, the anime, has a main character who feels very much patterned on this version of Philip Marlowe. Hmm. So you've, you've got the character of Spike Spiegel, who is he's a bounty hunter in space. But he's got the same hair, he's got the same suit, he's got the same whatever happens, happens, it's okay with me, and I'm going to smoke cigarettes literally wherever I possibly can. And so that show kind of draws out a little bit more of the existential, well, if nothing matters, what do we do in a universe where nothing matters? And I was struck on this revisit of the movie, like, just how at odds I think Philip Marlowe's moral framework is from the rest of the world around him. And maybe that kind of leans in a little bit to that sense of his being sort of unmoored in time because again he's he's not really tied up in any of the pettier affairs of the people that he gets mixed up in he's willing to listen to his cellmate in the jail complain and he's willing to listen to his clients talk about their problems and their issues and he does very clearly care about some of them as individual people but he's also not going to interfere. It kind of feels like he's just sort of skating along the surface. And so I was curious to know, like, how you felt about 
the it's it's a very bleak world this this LA of 1973 in this movie like I was curious to know like how you felt about how Marlowe kind of fits into all of that on like a moral level you know I it really seems to me like this film and Chinatown are two sides of the same coin they're both mm-hmm. neo-noirs set in the 1970s California one of them kind of plays the the noir element a little bit more straight you know Chinatown is much more serious-minded. Gettys is not the the wise-cracking uh, gumshoe that uh, Marlowe is in in the Long Goodbye. But they both kind of a through line running through both films is the heroes kind of having to realize that the world is is grubbier and more disturbing than they had maybe initially thought, and coming to terms with that in some way. Hmm. Um, in Chinatown, Gettys is is sort of like he's he's hollowed out by the end of that film, right? Like he uh, his he's just shocked and saddened and disgusted, and his partner just has to say like that's the way the world is, man. That's Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Forget it. It's, it's that's just the way things go. In this one, there's a similar note that it ends on when when Marlowe confronts his friend, who spoiler alert is not really dead mm-hmm. um, and has actually committed the crime that he was accused of. There's a sense of betrayal in that final confrontation that is very saddening. Mm-hmm. Um, and the final music cue is that, you know, this really upbeat, boppy, like <laughs> Hollywood <laughs> yeah. uh, moment. And that's a similar thing, like Altman telling us this is the, just the way the world is. I think that, the difference is Marlowe kind of has this sort of rumpled uh, roll with the punches um, humor to it that he that's his defense against it. Whereas Getty's kind of is is much more of a brawler, I guess. Like mm-hmm. it feels like Getty's wants to fight it. Marlowe kind of wearily accepts it, mm-hmm. and I thought that was really interesting to think about that dichotomy yeah yeah it's funny so you mentioned chinatown i actually was thinking about the third man (coughs) oh yeah i was actually thinking about the third man a lot when i was watching this movie especially that final shot um so the third man of course has the famous final shot where um our main character sees the woman that he's fallen for you know harry lime's girlfriend walking by out of the cemetery and he gets out of his car and he waits for her and she keeps on walking past him towards the camera without stopping. She doesn't look at him. She just keeps on going. And that is kind of a statement on just how bleak and pragmatic, you know, the world is. And in The Long Goodbye, you all you also get a shot that's very similar to that final shot at the very end. So after Philip Marlowe shoots his best friend, his childhood best friend, because his best friend has committed the crime that he was accused of doing and kind of left Marlowe in the lurch for it. Marlowe carries out this vigilante killing, essentially, like this justice thing. And his childhood best friend um, has a girlfriend who Marlowe has been mixed up with in L.A. who is driving to go meet the best friend like at the very end. And Marlowe is walking down the street and she is driving in a car in the opposite direction. It's a tree-lined street, very similar to the one at the Mm. end of The Third Man. And the tone, like, you could not get further. You could get 
you're probably like galaxies away in tone from these two. But at the same time, both of these movies are saying like, this is just the way that the world is. And you kind of have to deal with it in whatever way that you can. And I think that's, you know, for even though stylistically, just in its visual language, in its writing, The Long Goodbye feels very different from a lot of noirs. Mm-hmm. It still has that sensibility where after the war, something changed, something broke, something got warped, and there's really no going back. You can't go home again. Mm-hmm. And that's especially true for this version of Marlowe, who feels like a time traveler. He's the only one wearing a suit uh, to the point where people literally make fun of him for wearing the suit. Like, what are you doing wearing that suit and that JC Penny tie? Like, take yeah. that stuff off. We're in California. You're sitting on the beach. Um, but he, he's a man out of time mm. and he's he's he feels completely out of place. And that's just another way to sort of express the idea that something broke and there's no going back again after you know the things that we've seen or the the people that we've encountered um and i I don't know i think that that makes it even though yeah it's so different it just feels very much of a piece in in its sensibility that way Mm -hmm. i'm curious to know how you feel about this movie's sensibility towards women as well because to me it feels also kind of along the lines of of other films noir where every woman has a shady secret and she's kind of unknowable. Like, did you get that sense in this too? Or, I mean, I didn't. It's interesting because, and, and when I wrote that uh, synopsis at the top of the segment, I specifically used uh, inscrutable women rather than femme fatale or, or some other um, uh, phrasing because, you know, there is obviously the the one woman that he gets mixed up with who it turns out was kind of, in on it, mm-hmm. uh, in in on the on the big scheme, but for the most part, the it struck me that the women in this film aren't necessarily devious or uh, untrustworthy. They're just kind of Marlowe doesn't really know what to make of them. His mm-hmm. his hippie neighbors across the way are just very strange, um, and he doesn't even though they are often doing yoga in the nude and, and doing all these things that uh, the people around Marlowe are just sort of like agog at. It's the, the two-bit gangsters who show up at his doorstep can't stop gawking. Marlowe just sort of like, you know, asks them if they need anything from the corner store, asks them to take care of his cat. Um, he doesn't really engage with them in the way that maybe another noir hero would, where he either distrusts them or desires them marlo's just sort of like i don't get these women but they probably want some stuff from the shop down the street so i'll (laughs) offer i guess uh i don't know i i thought i thought that was interesting at the same time there is a lot of there's one minor female character the uh the the mall of the of the gangster who he literally he brutalizes in the most shockingly violent scene in the film Mm -hmm. simply to make a point Mm -hmm. he he smashes a bottle in her face and then tells marlo like i like her and i smashed a bottle in her face imagine what i'll do to you because i don't even like you yeah um and that was shocking that that that's a shocking moment and that too felt very noir where the woman isn't a person so much as a 
concept to make a point about something for for the characters. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, I thought that to be, I found that to be, again, of a piece of it, even though the the overall view of women seems to be more more of a 1970s view, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. So yeah, that scene that you just mentioned is is probably one of the more upsetting scenes I've probably ever seen. Like I think about it sometimes and it it's it's not fun to watch even if you know that it's coming. Um but it does strike me that I think Marlowe's view and the movie's view are very different from those of the gangsters around them. I th- I think that Marlowe being this like drifting t- sort of time traveler um, he, he seems to have a better understanding of people as people and people always being people, no matter like where they come from or who they are, as opposed to these gangsters who really only see each other and see the other people around them as, as things to be exploited, essentially. Um, and I think it's telling that a lot of those gangsters, like that minor gangster that you mentioned with, with the Coke bottle, he treats all of his henchmen in kind of the same way as well. So it's not just that he is is violent towards women. He's also just violent towards people too um, and exploitative towards people too. There is a scene that I do find deeply funny towards the end of the movie where he tells all of, <laughs> he tells all of his henchmen to take all of their clothes off because if everybody around him is naked, then they have no secrets from each other and everybody therefore must tell the truth. And I love that Marlo is just completely bemused by this. He's not going along with it, but he's also not fighting it either. He's just sort of passively like, what is your deal, man? Why do you have to go through with this? That's that's kind of what I meant when I talked about the it feeling kind of like a Coen Brothers kind of sense of humor, because that too felt, it's a very tense scene. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the woman who had the bottle smash in her face is also present there. Mm-hmm. And when the gangster begins talking you think oh no what's he going to do to her this time Mm -hmm. in order just to make a point and you can tell by the the way altman's camera lingers on her face and her darting eyes that she's wondering the exact same thing Mm -hmm. but then you know everybody just start all the men start stripping down and uh it's 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 funny and also deeply disquieting and i i found it to be a very interesting mix i also did not expect arnold schwarzenegger to be in this movie baby arnold schwarzenegger baby arnold schwarzenegger is in this movie he's got a he's got a weird 70s mustache so i mean that's listeners that's uh maybe worth the price of admission all by itself um but yeah i i think that that's kind of what i'm thinking of when i think of this as a comedy is it's it's a comedy that also knows that there's some deeply unfunny things in the world as well hmm. um i think it's kind of it's clear-eyed in that way, I guess. The the comedy is does what a lot of good comedy is, which is kind of be very clear-eyed about the world while also laughing at it and using that clarity to elicit laughs and uh, expose truth at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm spitballing here, but that feels right when I say it out loud like that. <laughs> it feels perceptive, which I think the movie is too. So I guess one one last thing that I'm curious to know, did you find the mystery satisfying at all? Not really. Okay. Uh, if I have one complaint about the movie, it would be that I didn't find the mystery to be all that compelling. And the eventual resolution, it kind of felt like, okay, it's the end of the movie and now we have to <laughs> reveal what, what happened. I, I didn't. I, I found the scenes where Marlowe's kind of trying to find the alcoholic writer, which is the job he's originally hired to, to do. As a woman comes to him and says, my husband's gone missing, I need you to find him. And he goes searching for the missing husband and finds him. And I I found that mystery and the procedural 
uh, way that Altman follows Marlowe around and, and the, the systematic ways that he follows leads, tracks them down, eventually succeeds. I, fa- I found that very interesting. I wish that same kind of procedural sensibility had been brought to the central mystery because it kind of just seems like I don't know. It, it, it seems like the, the solution is eventually just given to it falls in our lap and falls in Marlowe's lap. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all, it wasn't particularly satisfying to me. It's not, it also struck me as kind of beside the point. So I didn't come down too hard on the movie for that. But uh, yeah, if I had one small complaint, it might be that I wish it was just a little bit more uh, satisfying as a mystery. I don't know. Yeah. What, 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 what's your take? I mean, it's okay with Marlo, so it's okay with me. <laughs> Just it feels like he's drifting into the solutions to all of his problems as well, and that's that's fine by me. Yeah, spoken. I mean, spoken like a, a true Marlo de- devotee. Uh, the man himself would would very much approve. That's okay with me. Well, listeners, that is our review of Robert Altman's 1973, The Long Goodbye. If you had a chance to uh, watch along with us, uh, let us know your thoughts. It's a movie that was on my list to catch up with for a long time, so I'm glad that I finally had the chance. Thanks, Sarah, for for picking that out. So glad to share it with you. So next week, we are going to be uh, watching uh, Till. Mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to talking about that as well. We have a, a screening coming up on that pretty soon. And for the Watchlist segment, I'm going to introduce you to a little movie called Killer of Sheep. This is the 1978 indie film by Charles Burnett. Um, Listeners, if you want to watch along with us, it's a a great movie. Maybe one of the the early seminal indie films in in American filmmaking. Um, It's a little difficult to find, but you can find it on archive.org. A couple of years back, uh, some preservationists put it online for for free for anyone who wants to see it. So it is archived uh, on there, so you can find it just by Googling it. Also, if you're a Canopy subscriber or have access through your public library, you can catch it on the Canopy streaming service. So looking forward to talking about that next week. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. This one, this is another movie that has also been on my list for forever and have not had the chance to catch up with it. So I'm, I'm excited for the opportunity. Excellent. Well, that does it for this week's show. However, Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host Sarah Welch Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.